and we're back with another episode of the Anarchist Experience, episode 122, a podcast only this week. As always, I'm your host, Mr. Rich E. Rich, and flying solo, uh, partially my fault, um, recording the show a day later than we usually do. Some personal issues got in the way of recording the, the live show at our usual time. Uh, not that any of you guys tried to call in, uh, even though you were invited per usual, um, but yeah, doing it, doing the, uh, another edition of Rich Reads the News, uh, MC wasn't able to, to make the time to join us, he's off having fun on Xbox and all that, but we'll go ahead and just jump right into it, um, really not in the mood to do a lot of commentary on the news, so I'll present it as is, uh, if, if the mood strikes me to say anything more, then I will, um, if not, you've got a boring edition of Rich Reads the News, uh, and probably a short episode, because when I'm done reading it, I'm done. So here we go with the headlines. Headline, Why I Fight for a World Without the State by Bill Bupert. Uh, headline, I've done a bad thing. Five-year-old girl burst into tears as cops fine her for a lemonade stand. Uh, headline, private property in higher ed. Headline, a global police operation undermines darknet markets. Headline, the government thinks this couple isn't smart enough to be parents, so it took their kids away. And finally, headline, Bank of Italy warns against creating your own currency. Uh, you know what? Before we get into that, I will uh, give you guys one update uh, on what's going on with me personally um, because it was a little bit of a headache, but I did it. Uh, I finally got my uh, wrecked moped back from police custody uh, in all its destroyed glory. Uh, and the only reason I'm sharing this is because, as many of you know, uh, I don't have a driver's license anymore, but I still drive a car and I still ride a moped and I still manage to get around proving that you don't need that little piece of plastic uh, to drive or ride or do whatever. However, uh, in order to get a broken, beat up, uh, you know, salvage parts only moped back from the police, uh, a driver's license was required. Um, so I, I went down there with, you know, the little letter they sent me to pick it up, the registration so they knew it was mine and my, you know, uh, passport because it's the only state ID I carry now um, to pick it up. And they're like, no, 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 you cannot drive it out of here without a license. And I went, well, no one's driving it anywhere. Have you seen it? It's a wreck. You know, it was it was totaled in an accident. I just I just need it for salvage and parts and maybe get some money out of it that way. I said, protocol is protocol. Uh, we, we do not bend the rules for anybody. I said, well, I have, I have a licensed driver, you know, up with the truck who's helping me pick it up to, you know, to tow it away, not to, to ride it away. Um, will that be sufficient? Like, you know, can he come around back and load it up and show you his license? And like, no, no, no. He must come down here first uh, because we need to make a photocopy of his ID and along with all of your other information before we can allow you to load it onto a truck, this non-rideable, uh, you know, mangle of parts. Um. So it was, it was uh, a little bit of an inconvenience, um, but I did it. We got it back. We were able to, to tow it out of there. Um, and hopefully, uh, even though, and that's the thing, right? Like in this particular situation, um, I was on like, I was technically on their side, right? Like I had, I had agreed uh, to be a witness for the prosecution for a change um, only because the, the guy tried to run. And if he didn't try to run, I'd be like, all right, you know, whatever, we'll handle this civilly. But he tried to run, and, you know, I felt a little vengeful. Uh, so I agreed to, to be a witness. And I never had to testify. So I didn't, it, you know, aside from agreeing to it, like everything was handled without my presence. I never even seen what the guy actually looked like uh, or care, for that matter. Um, but it was one of the few times that I was, like, technically on their side, and they still hassle me. 
It wasn't like a confiscated moped, you know, from some like drug deal or drug bust or whatever, you know, some bad guy doing bad things and like, oh, we're not going to give you back your ride. It was like I was in an accident and I was on your side and you guys are still hassling me uh, to get this thing back. So a little bit miffed, a little bit peeved about that, but got it back. Um, probably going to end up taking pictures of it at some point and putting that on my personal page if you guys follow that on Facebook. Uh, Otherwise, yeah, just a quick update that I'm I'm no, I I don't have any other uh, involvement with the state at this time. Like that's all wrapped up, um, and my I have an uh, appointment with my attorneys to see what's going on on the civil side and trying to get a settlement some money uh, for getting hit. Um, but otherwise, currently nothing going on with the state. No tickets, no fines, none of that going on. So, uh, yeah, real quick brief update for you guys on that, um, and now we can get back into those headlines. All right, headline, Why I Fight for a World Without the State by Bill Bupert. Uh, I believe that all government is evil and that trying to improve it largely a waste of time. H.L. Mencken, everything, state, everything the state says is a lie and everything it has, it has stolen. Frederick Nietzsche, Eve, all this riot and uproar, V. Is this anarchy? Is this the land of do as you please? V, no, this is only the land of take what you want. Anarchy means without leaders, not without order. With anarchy comes an age of ordon of true order, which is to say voluntary order. This age of ordon will begin when the mad and incoherent cycle of verwinning and these bulletins reveal has run its course. This is not anarchy, Eve. This is chaos. Alan Moore, V for Vendetta. Why does this site exist, and what will you get out of it? Every blog is something of a vanity project and a catharsis for thinking out loud, and this suits both for me. Aside from writing a book, a blog is a legacy that may last far longer than I do. Nothing really disappears from the internet, and I am certain there is folks in the government who are always interested in maintaining a watchful eye on blogs such as mine, because they represent the most direct philosophical threat to their very existence. My son discovered while he was dating a girl in the Dakota oil fields that DHS uses me as an example of nonviolent dissenter in the U.S. The young lady had aspirations to be a cockroach and was taking a training seminar sponsored by DHS. Bully for me. In an earlier phase of my intellectual development, I have been seduced by the heady siren song of limiting government, which sounds like the most viable solution, but on closer examination is the most silly and shallow of chimeras. There is no historical precedent in the Western world throughout its entire history of a government birthing from, a, or birthing from or calving off another or rising out of the ashes of extinction of the previous regime and containing themselves within the confines of power originally set forth at their germination. None. There are pl plenty of empty promises and proclamations of purity, but the usual suspects will be self-selected to seek to rule others, most of whom are socio or psychopathic. Politics is nothing more than the nationalization of human transactions where the converse is the complete privatization of the planet. The latter is the character of this blog, or the latter is the charter of this blog. Uh, nationalization is the government seizure, there is no polite term, of a product, service, or behavior. This can happen with something as mundane as the circumference of a grapefruit, or something as epic in scope as the forfeiture of healthcare, or the use of the innumerable malum prohibitum laws on the books. For those who take a longer view of history, it becomes abundantly clear that the governments in their life stages until their eventual death, which are inevitable, rarely seem to calculate second and third order effects of their meta-behaviors. 
I've always presumed that while good intentions may be the standard apologia for the lion's share of government action and behavior, this is simply an intellectual smokescreen with the same vapidity as hate crimes. Heightening what is true nature of government, which is the threat or use of violence against anyone or anything, which either refuses to comply or pays the assessed tribute. One should never measure a government's behavior by its intent, but by the fruits of its actions, and that is a bitter fruit indeed for the totality of human history. It's almost as if we have been in a fever dream, surrounded by inmates in a vast prison state, which has effectively through indoctrination trained people to consciously think that harming others through fining, jailing, maiming, and killing is the only blueprint for any possible society. Think of that, a near consensus among thinking human beings that the only way to organize a just society is through terror. Terrorism is the use of politically motivated violence against non-combatants or innocents in kinder parlance. One might say that the global war on terror, or OCO, or whatever the new name has been applied to the 200-year war on the world America has waged, exponentially increased the size of government, has been pointed in the wrong direction. We have friends and relations who enjoy boasting of law and order, the tough guys who pronounced that the latest cockroach beating was warranted, and the prison rape the men will endure while caged for their sentence is perfectly justified for their crimes. Even if the offense were a, as banal as paperwork violation, avoidance of taxes, or an infraction against the tens of thousands or, or of law or normal humans could comprehend, much less have awareness of. Remember that this is all about the law and not about human context, because context is totally absent from government calculus. It is part of its power. I have mentioned before that every American is subject to indefinite detention in the just-us system, uh, the federal government and its subsidiary political elements known as the state have erected it is another tool in the arsenal of democracy that is a fancy name for mob rule subject to the cockocrats at the top of the system the government has been successful beyond their wildest expectations in creating a captive and occupied population from which they derive both their material suc sucker and the sophisticated means to bully and control the millions tens of millions of humans the government must erect these officious and brutal means of suppression, otherwise the small percentage of liberty-minded folks who chafe at living on a feedlot, 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 and having their lives micromanaged would set a very bad example for the rest, who would take notice of the people who elect not to abide by the system. As with the likelihood of secession looming even brighter, once the first person is allowed to opt out from the government compines, a stampede will commence that will be unstoppable. This is why the IRS is invested with such formidable powers and fine and cage recalcitrant taxpayers. America has conducted a brilliant government campaign to put the state at the top tier of idolatry and the family and individual violation at the bottom, and individual volition at the bottom. Uh, this has been a two-tiered assault. The government makes it very inconvenient to fight its de depredations as an individual and endure and ensures that the education system is kept in a tight orbit around government supremacism. Most of the readers have attended some college and have seen firsthand the absolute monopoly of the government supremacist mindset among faculty, administration, and student alike. The emergence of the brain-dead commies disguised as Antifa only proved this notion. Socialism hide the guns and the communists aren't afraid to brandish it figuratively and literally. When one suggests that nonviolence may be preferable building system for a peaceful society instead of the enslavement of government, one is almost universally scorned. It is not interesting, is it not interesting that all fevered anti-war rhetoric from the left 
disappeared once the Obominus occupied the Oval Office and then once the Amphibian entered the swamp this year. His bombing of Syria and saber-rattling have been met with fawning praise from the state stenographers in the media. The collectivism permeates the American Academy, with very little exception, and this from doyens in the, humili- in the humanities and social sciences, whose job may be labor, 8 to 12 hours per week, unless they have paid teaching assistance available. The rest of time certainly is not used to practice critical thinking, but to sharpen the same weak-minded rationalizations of the universities. Uh, you'll note this isn't uh, heteroversity. To justify the ultimate goal of extinguishing every private aspect of human life. They prettily dress the rhetoric in high-minded humanitarian goals, but in the end, they are the intellectual equivalents of prison guards in, the moral, in their moral imaginations. There's reasons most of the university scum despise the private ownership of weapons, but remain mum on the state armed with the latest tools to extinguish other human beings. And then we have the mooing and muling from certain sections of the feedlot about the sacred constitution and returning to our roots to regain our liberties. Fat chance since the germination of that document gave us the leviathan we labor under today. Here is a thought experiment for you. The next time you have a convivial discussion, a convivial discussion of politics or society with your friends and family, tell them to see if they are capable of conducting the discussion without advocating advocating the initiation of violence on their fellow humans. See if the conversation about politics will in any fashion examine alternatives to inherent violence and compulsion. While I despise the false front of left and right, which are simply degrees of collectivism, you will notice that even the peace advocates tend to embrace the use of force domestically and the hawks tend to glorify the killing of humans around the globe. Yet it is hard to distinguish between them anymore, especially since the latest occupant of the Oval Office despite a rather comical leftist pedigree, is indistinguishable in his actions from his neoconservative socialist predecessor. The government programs of indoctrination have been so so thorough that most will be speechless and unable to communicate because government is not about the noble ideas of securing rights or ensuring liberty, but the cardinal opposite. In the most naked and unadorned form, it is simply a cop, invested with all we have come to expect from that particular class, a base viciousness with no limit whatsoever in the ability to cage, maim, and kill for crimes that would not exist within the realm of common sense or decency. Killing in the name of love, indeed. I plan to embark on a quixotical and scintillating quest in the near future to explicate why cooperation and nonviolence, except in response to initiated violence and the preferable and virtuous ways to order a society. This may be a Sisyphean task, but a necessary one. We owe it to our children to offer a better future and not a more comfortable, for now, prison cell. Oh yes, taxation is theft. A government that can, pleasure, that, uh, that can at pleasure accuse, shoot, and hang men as traitors for the one general offense of refusing to surrender themselves and their property unreservedly to its arbitrary will can practice any and all special and particular oppressions it pleases. The result, and a natural one, has been that we have had the governments, state and national, devoted to nearly every grade and species of crime that governments have ever practiced upon their victims, and these crimes have culminated in a war that has cost millions of lives, a war carried on upon one side for chattel slavery and on the other for political slavery, upon neither for liberty, justice, or truth. And these crimes have been committed, and this war waged by men and the descendants of men who, for less than a hundred years ago, said that all men were equal and could owe neither service to individuals nor allegiance to government 
except with their own consent. Lysander Spooner. Uh, end of the article. Headline. <clears throat> I've done a bad thing. Five-year-old girl bursts into tears as cops fine her for lemonade stand. A five-year-old girl had her entrepreneurial spirit crushed over the weekend by four officers who issued her a $200 ticket for selling lemonade without a permit. Or with no permit. Common sense among those who work inside the state is a rare commodity. Agents of the state, like those who work for law enforcement often become so blinded to reality by just doing my job, they throw logic and reason to the wayside, choosing authority and force instead. Nothing highlights this blind order following, quite like police tormenting a five-year-old girl and issuing her a citation for the crime of selling lemonade without a permit. She just wanted to put a smile on people's faces. She was really proud of herself, Andre Spicer the father of the five-year-old girl who all of a sudden found herself on the receiving end of a police state over the weekend. Spicer told the BBC that his daughter set up a table and was selling lemonade in Mile End, East London, while thousands of music fans were on their way to the Lovebox Festival over the weekend. She was in a prime spot and was making money. That is, until the coppers showed up. Exactly how many police officers did it take to shut down a five-year-old's lemonade stand? Four! As Spicer explains, but after a small time trading, four enforcement officers walked over from the other side of the road. I was quite shocked. I thought that they would just tell us to pack up and go home. Instead of telling the five-year-old that she should not be selling lemonade without a permit, which would have been atrocious enough, these hero cops protected society by issuing her a fine for 150 pounds, uh, nearly $200 U.S., but they turned on their mobile cameras and began reading from a big script, explaining that she did not have a trading license, Spicer explained. At this point, the girl became horrified at the, as the, at the four large officers standing over her, telling her she'd broken the law. My daughter clung to me, screaming, Daddy, Daddy, I've done a bad thing. She's five, Spicer said. We were then issued a fine of 150 pounds. We packed up and walked home. The sheer lack of humanity a person has to have to issue a $200 ticket to a five-year-old girl for selling squeezed lemons mixed with water to willing patrons is disturbing, to say the least. All hope of inhumanity is not lost, however. Uh, once Spicer spoke out about the ridiculous fine his daughter received, the city council eventually heard about it. Uh, as BBC reported, a council spokesman said, We were very sorry to have this happen. We expect our enforcement officers to show common sense and to use their powers sensibly. This clearly did not happen. Luckily for the Spicer family, positive publicity is more valuable than the $200 fine to the city, so they chose to take the high road. The fine will be canceled immediately, and we have contacted Mr. Spicer and his daughter to apologize, the council spokesman said. However, you can rest assured that if Spicer had not spoken out about the fine and instead chosen, simply chosen not to pay it, a warrant would have been issued and force would have been escalated for lemonade. As NBC reports in his column for The Telegraph, Spicer, a professor at the Cass School of Business at London City's University, lamented all the rules, regulations, and monitoring of children that goes on now, often stifling creativity, entrepreneurial spirit, and the confidence gained by giving children a little independence. I think the wider issue here is a question about encouraging children to have a go at things 
Whether it's starting a small business or putting on a play or whatever they want to do, Spicer told ITV. Children are under a lot of pressure these days and are often not encouraged to take risks. It's turning out to be a hard and fast lesson in how government requirements on business, many of which play no role in protecting people or the environment, put a heavy, unnecessary burden on aspiring entrepreneurs like Spicer's Little Girls Lemonade Stand. Revenue collection is often the only driver of government permits and licenses, and this collection is enforced with police force. Bearing down on the age-old tradition of youngsters setting up lemonade stands demonstrates how obsessed the state has become in regulating small business. It appears that Spicer's daughter made it through the gauntlet with the help of publicity and social media. Others are not so fortunate, though. In Portland, Oregon, an 11-year-old girl wanted to sell mistletoe from their farm at a holiday market to help her dad pay for her braces, which cost $5,000. But the Parks Bureau refused to let her set up without a permit, lease, or concession agreement. She was told she could beg instead. In 2015, comedian Jerry Seinfeld's son Julian and two friends set up a lemonade stand to raise money for charity. However, thanks to a see-something-say-something neighbor... Uh, Police were notified of the illegal lemonade venture. Hero officers then swooped in to shut down the lemonade to the to shut down the stand, citing local village law violations. After being shut down, Jerry and family posed for an epic pic, trolling both the police and the neighbors who would call the cops to shut down a charitable lemonade stand. Uh, End of the article. uh, A link to that picture is in the article. So if you want to see that, go ahead there and take a look. Next headline as we power through this episode. Private property and higher ed. Uh, the U.S. higher education world has been rocked the last two years by student protest, free speech controversies, and allegations of faculty misconduct at schools as diverse as Missouri, Yale, Middlebury, Berkeley, and even Evergreen State College. You've all heard about safe spaces, microaggressions, intersectionality, snowflakes, claims that certain forms of speech constitute violence, and so on. Professors have been assaulted by protesters and even fired or pressured to quit for expressing politically controversial ideas, though some are protected. Certain private groups have been banned, even from, the meet- even from meeting off campus. Students, faculty, and staff are subjugated to endless hours of sensitivity training, despite evidence that such programs increase rather than alleviate tensions among groups. Some schools are already experiencing blowback, while others are taking advantage of these controversies to differentiate themselves from rivals. Pundits are predicting campus craziness as the next hot-button issue in U.S. presidential politics. What is to be done? While I greatly admire the efforts of groups like FIRE, F-I-R-E, to protect the rights of faculty and students accused of politically incorrect speech or actions, I disagree with them on one fundamental point. The First Amendment protects freedom of expression for students and professors at state-owned and publicly funded colleges and universities, and it's perfectly appropriate for the courts or regulatory agents to discipline schools that punish speech. At private schools, however, it's a different story. Restrictions on the speech or behavior of students or faculty may violate a contract, for instance a university that states a public commitment to free speech and disciplines a student for saying or doing something politically incorrect, may have breached its contract with the student and could be liable for damages. A college that includes protection for academic freedom is in agreement with faculty, then fires a professor for something he said in the classroom or tweeted or wrote in an op-ed or shouted at a rally, 
may be guilty of breach of contract. Of course, the school could argue that the student violated the code of conduct or the professor is guilty of moral turpitude, the boundaries of which would also be spe specified by contract. The point is that these are not free speech issues or political issues at all, but private contractual disagreements which should be resolved by arbitration or by the courts. The First Amendment has no bearing on these situations. As Murray Rothbart argued in Ethics for Liberty, in Ethics of Liberty, in a free society, there are no free speech rights, only property rights. Property owners may encourage or restrict speech or other forms of behavior, though they may be liable for damage if such restrictions violate some prior contractual agreement. More generally, as Rothbard put it, uh, not only are there no human rights, which are also not property rights, but the former rights lose their absoluteness and clarity and become fuzzy and vulnerable when property rights are not used as the standard. For this reason, the libertarian position on recent campus controversies is to fight not for free speech, but for property rights. Higher education should be privatized, taking these issues out of the political sphere. Should Charles Murray or Ann Coulter be invited to lecture? Should students be disciplined for boycotting classes? Should a professor be fired for saying the wrong thing? It's up to the owners to decide. Students can choose to attend or not. Faculty can seek employment or quit. Financial supporters can donate or withhold funds. All based on their free and voluntary decisions to associate with one school or another. I've written before in defense of diversity in higher education, not just the viewpoint diversity championed by groups like the Heterodox Academy, but also diversity of strategies and structures. Let colleges and universities be large or small, diversified or specialized, highbrow or lowbrow, hippie or conservative, secular or religious, tolerant or intolerant, who are outsiders to judge. A thousand flowers blooming and all that. Uh, updater. Commenter Phil Miller asks a good question. If a private school accepts federal grants and a federal student loan, shouldn't it be subject to the Bill of Rights? In other words, what is the boundary between public and private in higher education? I've raised the same issue before. Elite private universities like Stanford and Chicago receive a higher percentage of their total budget from governmental sources, mainly research grants and contracts than many state colleges. In the context of free speech, however, I would make the distinction based on ownership. The University of Wisconsin or South Georgia State College are state-owned, with ultimate decision authority vested in a board of regents or curators appointed by the governor. Private colleges and universities are usually chartered as nonprofit corporations, or more recently, public benefit corporations, with residual control rights held by trustees or other officers. Even if the latter receive state funds, they remain private organizations and hence not fully bound by the rules applying to government agencies and state-owned enterprises. But it is a tricky distinction. The solution, of course, is full privatization. Less Stanford and Chicago, more Grove City and Hillsdale, and TED Talks, Udemy, Mises Academy, etc. Uh, end of that article. As we are blowing through these, because I have nothing more to add and nothing to say. Uh, if you do, uh, please go to the group page on Facebook and comment on the articles. And next time we can talk about it. Otherwise, we continue to blaze on. Headline. A global police operation undermines darknet markets. A major operation orchestrated by the FBI, DEA, Dutch National Police, and Europol managed to infiltrate and undermine the underground infrastructure of two primary interconnected darknet marketplaces. International investigators officially seeds Hansa, dark site today, along with Alphabay, shutting the sites down. These pages traded roughly... 350,000 illicit commodities.
which included hacking software, guns, and a smorgasbord of drugs, according to a Europol press release. Authorities said that this operation was one of the most significant and complex operations ever conducted against dark web marketplaces. The European Commissioner for Migration, Home Affairs, and Citizenship commented on the situation, The dark web is growing into a haven of rampant criminality. This is a threat to our societies and our economies that we can only face together on a global scale. The takedown of the two largest criminal dark web markets in the world by European and American law enforcement authorities shows the important and necessary result of international cooperation to fight this criminality. I congratulate the American and Dutch authorities for their successful work as well as Europol for centrally supporting this endeavor. Uh, popularity of dark markets and subsequent investigation. <clears throat> Both Alpha Bay and Hansa will be extremely popular market have been extremely popular marketplaces for Tor users to browse and purchase illicit wares. According to the Europol press release, Alpha Bay reached a peak of 200,000 users and 40,000 vendors. Apparently, there are over 250,000 listings for drugs and chemicals. There are also 100,000 listings for fraudulent documents. It was the largest underground marketplace. Hansa, on the other hand, was the third largest. It catered to many users and dealt in high-volume drug and gun transactions. Uh, police and other international forces have been tracking and investigating these types of sites for several years. A company called Bitdefender has been aiding various police organizations in analyzing transactions taking place on the aforesaid sites. The press release provides an overview. With the help of Bitdefender, an internet security company advising Europol's European Cybercrime Center, uh, Europol provided Dutch authorities with an investigation led into Hansa in 2016. Subsequent inquiries located the Hansa market infrastructure in the Netherlands, with follow-up investigations by the Dutch police leading to the arrest of its two administrators in Germany and the seizure of servers in the Netherlands, Germany, and Lithuania. The press release further mentioned that the U.S. DEA, in cooperation with the FBI, conducted an operation called Bayonet, which weeded out the Alpha Bay servers and led to the arrest of its founder, one Alexander Cases, a Canadian national. He was apparently living the luxurious, luxurious life in Thailand. Uh, Jamie Redmond of Bitcoin.com previously reported Cases was found dead in his cell. A report suggests he hung himself. Redmond detailed what officials discovered in the investigation. Reports from the Bangkok Post detail that authorities seized three Thai homes that belonged to cases worth 400 million baht, 11.7 million dollars U.S. Additionally, Thai police claimed they confiscated four Lamborghinis and said cases has been residing in Thailand for over eight years. Uh, Europol's usage of digital forensic analysis. Europol played a major role in helping analyze information absorbed from the Hansa marketplace. The European Cybercrime Center leveraged their technical and forensic acumen to infiltrate and undermine the Hansa marketplace. Intelligence they gained through this work was subsequently deployed to investigators across the globe. According to the press release, the distribution of these intelligent packets led to the law enforcement in 37 countries to begin new investigations into users who may have accessed and used Hansa. Nick Content Carter even tweeted police have begun collecting data on 10,000 Hansa users and they could use any information gathered to spearhead a massive arrest campaign in the near future. It appears police and government agencies had covert control over the website for about a month, the Europol press release stated. 
Anyone who traded in Bitcoin and Ethereum can likely be traced if they sold their cryptocurrency on a major centralized exchange platform. Uh, briefing by Jeff Sessions on dark web marketplace busts. Furthermore, in a Department of Justice press briefing today, Jeff Sessions revealed that President Donald Trump ordered authorities to pursue and undermine Hansan Alpha Bay. A session said Trump wanted to dismantle these transnational darknet-based criminal networks. He said one is to dismantle internet transnational criminal organizations. That is why we are announcing today dismantling of the largest dark website in the world by far. Uh, during the briefing, Sessions implied that too many Americans are dying of drug overdose. He mentioned that he knew of several Americans that died of drug purchases on Alpha Bay. He said sites like Alpha Bay and Hansa are havens for prolific drug dealers and implied these organizations must be stopped at all costs. He said that he believes America has been made safer as a result of the darknet busts. Uh, do you think government shuttering these sites is a good thing with darknet markets? Can crop us a lot less in the comments? Blah, 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 blah. End of the article. Again. Blazing right through this. Next headline. The government thinks this couple isn't smart enough to be parents, so it took their kids away. Uh, they're not alone. Normal parenting mistakes can be used against people with disabilities. Eric Ziegler, 38, didn't do a good enough job teaching his son Christopher to wash his hands after going to the bathroom. So the state of Oregon put the boy in foster care. That's not the only reason the government intervened, but a lengthy story by Samantha Swindler in the Oregonian doesn't shy away from the awful, outrage-inducing truth. The state has taken a couple's children away not because they're abusing or neglecting the kids, but because they, it thinks the parents aren't smart enough to raise them properly. Uh, Ziegler and his partner Amy Fabrini both have below-average IQs, 72 and 66 respectively, according to the documents provided to the Oregonian. After Christopher was born in 2013, other family members, most significantly Fabrini's father, who has a troubled relationship with her, started warning the state's child welfare agency that there were problems. That there were problems. When the State Department of Human Services began investigating, it found no signs of abuse. But they did find representations of the struggles and frustrations of people with learning disabilities attempting to be parents. In a report, concerns about the couple's parenting skills of Mountain Star, a nonprofit organ group devoted to helping prevent child abuse, workers recalled having to, prompt them, having to prompt them to have Christopher wash his hands after using the toilet and to apply sunscreen to all of his skin rather than just his face. Fabrini and Ziegler's attorneys argued these weren't sufficient reasons to keep them from their son. Uh, this year, the couple had a second son, Hunter. The state took custody of him. Uh, this time, they didn't even wait to see how they'd behave as parents. Fabrini was still in the hospital, hospital when they took the boy. Uh, Oregon's justification for taking Christopher and Hunter away? Limited cognitive abilities that interfere with their ability to safely parent the child. In other words, the government declared them too dumb to be parents. Meanwhile, Slender's reporting described Ziegler and Fabrini's hard work in improving their parenting skills. It quotes other ex experts who are helping them and who believe the couple was kept oh, man. Other experts who are helping them and who believe the couple is capable of raising children. One volunteer mediator said she told caseworkers that she believed the couple was capable of raising Christopher. Her conclusion conflicted with the, po with the position taken by officials, and subsequently she said they told her that her services were no longer needed. 
America sadly has a lengthy history of using state power to interfere in intellectually disabled people's lives. What happened to this couple isn't as bad as what might have happened to them a century ago, where people with low IQs were often forcibly sterilized. Today, Fabrini and Ziegler's boys are hardly the only children have been taken by the government because their parents have learning disabilities. Or any disabilities, honestly. According to the National Council of Disabilities, in 35 states, it's perfectly legal to use a disability as a reason to terminate an adult's parental rights. Uh, the council calculates that between 40 and 80 percent of parents with intellectual disabilities have faced having their children removed. Uh, they don't have more precise numbers because of lack of research data. One expert quoted in the Oregonian noted that IQ doesn't really correlate with parenting problems until it drops below 50, and yet parents are losing custody of their children over fears of what might happen. Uh, culturally, we are well into an era where governments punish parents based on fears that are completely removed from accurate risk assessment. Uh, reasons Lenore Skenazy regularly documents the brutal, punitive results of this mentality. Parents are abused by the state and their neighbors for the slightest of slip-ups or for misplaced fears or unlikely harms. For those with any sort of disability, intellectual, physical, these slip-ups can also be used to justify breaking their families apart. Uh, the Oregonian also provided a short video about the family struggle. Watch below. Uh, so uh, check the link if you want to watch that video. I'm not going to watch it or play it here. End of the article. All right, last article. This was going to be my favorite, too. I, I, you know, in a different world. Uh, headline, citizens claim right to create scriptural euros. Uh, citizens conjure euros out of thin air, just like banks. Uh, create your own currency. Because the top cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and Ethereum, are open source, anyone can create their own cryptocurrencies. While the proliferation of cryptocurrencies has central banks concerned, another more insidious and perhaps greater threat to central banks, monopoly on money creation, is the, is the issuance of scriptural euros by citizens. Uh, what are scriptural euros? Scriptural euros are euros issued by citizens under a theory of an autonomous creation of scriptural currency, based on the idea that collective property of money that affirms the right of every citizen to autonom uh, autonomously create scriptural money, euros, via their own accounting records. The theory of autonomous creation of scriptural currency holds that, just as banks can conjure debt-based money out of thin air, so can citizens. Money thus created by citizens can then be used to extinguish their own debts. Apparently, citizens created euros having been accepted as payment. Uh, at Marcos Abit, Marco Saba shared his experience on Twitter, whereby his scriptural euros were accepted by Facebook as payment for advertising. Uh, the correspondence between them shows how he created 25 euros as payment to Facebook, and Facebook accepted the citizen-issued euros as payment. Uh, in the correspondence, Marco informed Facebook, Italy in English, that banks and citizens can create new euros in electronic form, and that he had just done so in the amount of 25 euros and was submitting them as payment. He also referred Facebook to his Facebook page for more information on citizen-created scriptural euros. Uh, Facebook responded in Italian by accepting his payment as of his self-created scriptural euros while noting his payment was being accepted this time, but such payment may not be honored in the future. Uh, according to him, Italian citizens have created more than 1 billion scriptural euros since October 2016. Uh, Internet urban legend? Citizens conjuring money out of thin air and having that money accepted as payment all seems like an internet urban legend. Perhaps in the example above, Facebook employee didn't want to argue over 25 euro and was just humoring Marco. 
or maybe the correspondence himself was spurious. Certainly, the claim that more than one billion scriptural euros have been created seems far-fetched, and that any large sum of scriptural euros being accepted as payment seems even further afield. However, the Bank of Italy responds? Despite what might appear to be a ludicrous ploy to convince citizens that they have the right to create their own euros, the Bank of Italy is taking scriptural euros seriously. Last month, the Bank of Italy issued a warning about the creation of scriptural euros. Attached to the warning was a PDF that explained the bank's position on scriptural euros. The position paper is entitled Scriptural Money Created by Citizens. The paper notes that its purpose is to avoid dangerous misunderstandings involving scriptural euros. Uh, the paper claims that only the Bank of Italy can issue the form of legal currency based on international and national legislation and that it is necessary for the Bank of Italy to have this power in order to guarantee overall confidence in currency and the stability of its value over time. The paper further notes that payment services throughout script writing is an activity allowed by law only to authorized persons such as banks, electronic money institutions, and other payment institutions. Uh, the paper concluded that initiatives for the creation of an autonomous scriptural currency have no legal basis and calls on citizens not to use such forms of currency. Uh, the scriptural euro issue may have more people asking questions about the creation of money out of thin air. If banks can do it, why can't we? Uh, more on the developing story. End of the article. I just thought that one was fun. Create your own money. Why not? Have fun with it. That's all the commentary I got. End of the article. End of the show. Thank you very much for listening. You know where to find us. Anarchistexperience.com. Facebook.com slash anarchistexperience. Uh, join in the discussion in the groups. Facebook.com slash groups slash anarchistexperience. And if you want to donate to the show financially, we do this through Patreon. Patreon.com slash the anarchistexperience. Uh, and one more call out to the piece of shit uh, who's been arguing with me on Facebook. Let me check his name real quick. Uh, Jeff Smith is a wannabe anarchist and a wannabe libertarian and don't believe a goddamn word that he says because he's a piece of shit for a human being. Fuck that guy. Thank you very much for listening and we'll talk to you all next week. Peace.